This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. There's perhaps no author or person who's made more of an impact on the modern notion of Christmas than Charles Dickens. The famed author is now almost synonymous with Christmas, and his legendary work, A Christmas Carol, has sold millions of copies and has been turned into no fewer than 135 different movies. With this legendary success, how best to tell his story? That's the subject of today's Preserve Cast, a deep dive into the legacy and story of Dickens with Dr. Cindy Segru, the director of the Charles Dickens Museum. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, uh, we're excited to be joined, perfect time of the year to do this, um, by Dr. Cindy Shugru, who is the director of the Charles Dickens Museum in merry old England, um, coming to us all the way from across the pond, and excited to be having this conversation this time of the year um, which we were just saying before we hit record is it's we've definitely hit the busy season for the Charles Dickens Museum. Um, but before we dive into the work of the Dickens Museum and preserving that legacy, um, Cindy, it, it'd be interesting just to kind of get to know you a little bit. Where'd you grow up? What put you on the path to leading this, you know, unique museum? And was was Dickens something you were always a fan of? And talk to us a little bit about your background. Great. Well, there are a few dots to connect here. I was actually born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I grew up in the Boston area. But you wouldn't necessarily know this from my accent, which was predominantly Scottish. I lived in Scotland for 30 years uh, before relocating back to to London six years ago. Um, But growing up in New England, I was surrounded by historic houses. The first one I can remember visiting was Orchard House, the home of Louisa May Alcott. And I've always been drawn to historic places. So here in England, we're immersed in it, whether it's a big monument like Stonehenge or a rather modest historic house like the Charles Dickens Museum. Um, and, you know, it was it was perhaps, you know, that, that sense of being connected to physical history in, in those sort of writers or artist houses. Um, that that sort of first got me thinking about um, the museum here in in a different way. But growing up in New England um, was was part of that being connected into a sort of historical cultural landscape. So um, really, perhaps the greatest uh, influence on my journey to Dickens and one I didn't see at the time was my brilliant high school English teacher a man called Neil Murphy, and he set us an incredibly challenging but brilliant reading list of a classic text each week. So we had to get through these at at the rate of knots, but I was introduced to Dickens and a number of other writers in a really meaningful way. Um, And it was in school that I started to read Dickens differently. I remember always being aware as most people are, of a Christmas carol. It was part of our regular uh, family Christmas tradition. It's almost in in my bones, my DNA. But in high school, reading Dickens 
under the sort of inspirational um, leadership of a, of a great English teacher, um, introduced me to the uh, not only the lyricism of how Dickens writes, but even in the most tragic moments, how funny he is. He's such a funny writer. So there's a lot of joy I got out of, of learning Dickens. <clears throat> and of course, life sometimes takes you in different directions. And uh, I ended up getting a scholarship to come to the UK in the 1980s to do a PhD um, in ethnochoreology, which is anthropology of dance. Um, and I worked in the cultural sector after completing that, um, did everything from running a contemporary art gallery uh, to a national ballet company. Um, but when this job came up six years ago, um, it seemed to draw all sorts of different threads together for me at a time that I was keen to come back to London. Um, so, yeah, I, I would have to say it really is the best job in the world. Um, and it's something that, that can give you a sense of um, connecting with a writer in a really rich and full way. Um, but also you have the pleasure of seeing hundreds of people come through the door every day or every week and see how fascinated they can become being in the place where Dickens lived and wrote, that sense of being connected to the sort of physical presence of a writer that's been gone a long time. I mean, he's he's almost a, a larger than life character. I mean, we, we talk about Dickensian writing. It's almost like he... Um, Dickens sort of like transcends himself like it's it you sometimes you forget that there's a person behind it which is why I think it's so fascinating and so important to have the house that actually grounds him as a human being not just this sort of um voice behind the pen but for someone who perhaps isn't familiar listening with Charles Dickens beyond maybe just a Christmas carol who was the who was this man and why is he still so beloved is it a Christmas carol is it the the whole collection of his work why why almost 200 years later are are we still talking about him and and is your life dedicated to running his museum well it, it's interesting because um i wish i had a pithy answer to you know who who was charles dickens beyond a christmas carol he certainly is remembered because of that and, and that is something that is almost always the, the starting point for people with with getting to know dickens um but he really is considered the greatest Victorian novelist, and he achieved in his lifetime unprecedented popular appeal. Um, you know, he was he was an international celebrity as we would know them today, a real superstar. And this was because he was the first writer to really portray contemporary life and issues and writing about ordinary people. It wasn't middle and upper class people, it was ordinary people that many people could relate to for the first time. So we have these iconic characters that entered popular culture. Um, but he was he was widely read or listened to and adapted for stage during his lifetime. Many of his novels um, received stage premieres before they were even completed. He, he wrote almost all his work in a serialized fashion. He'd come out in monthly or sometimes weekly installments. So very much like someone might watch, you know, a serialized program, a soap opera or indulge in a box set. Dickens was doing that active writing. Um, and it's always fascinating when people come here to the museum and they immerse themselves in this extraordinary collection that we have. 
that they can see how much of real life was drawn into his work and not and not just about buildings and places that people might still see in the the urban landscape here in London today but even the characters so to give you an example um in Oliver Twist there's a, a magistrate called Mr Fang and he's um he Oliver is hauled up before him after being caught supposedly for pickpocketing and Mr. Fang was modelled on a real person at the time who was a magistrate in the very same magistrate court that Dickens describes. And this real life character was called Alan Lang. So Mr. Lang becomes Mr. Fang. And something we have in our collection in our archive is a letter that Dickens wrote to a friend of his who was the court reporter at this magistrate's court. And he he says to his friend Dickens, writing to his friend, says, um, I want to model uh, a magistrate in my next installment of Oliver Twist on your Mr. Lang. And I know all about him and how notoriously harsh and cruel he is, but I've never set eyes on him. So could you smuggle me in one morning so I can see what he looks like? Because Dickens didn't want to just draw on the character. He wanted people to know exactly who these characters were. He wanted to be able to describe them and then thinly disguise them because his, his work was not just to tell great stories, which of course he did. He also wanted to make very pointed social and political comment. And I think that's one of the other reasons why Dickens was not just popular in his day, but remains popular today, because he he's talking about real issues that affect many people. And he does it with good humour, but also with deep understanding of human nature and with kindness and compassion and energy and also with this incredible lyric way of writing so you know he he embraced things that mattered to people then and I think that's the same energy and connection that that draws out that that continued popularity today yeah and it's it's such a it's such an approachable text too I think a lot of writing from the 19th century can be can be really dense and and kind of hard to wade through they they sometimes wrote in a way that is unfamiliar to the to the modern mind or modern tongue and um dickens seems to capture a little modernity in his writing i mean it's it's just it's very clear and accessible um at least from from my perspective compared to some of his contemporaries um which i i think probably accounts for why he's still so beloved because it's it's easy to read. It's it's not it's not impossible. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right, because he wasn't an intellectual writer writing about upper class people with highbrow concerns. You know, he was writing about ordinary people and situations. And with that deep understanding of of you know universal themes, you know, what drives us, our hopes, our dreams, you know, when we succeed, when we fail, and that sense of injustice we've all suffered some type of injustice in our lives and and that real triumph over adversity and and so you know I walk around London today and I see all sorts of Dickens characters we're wearing different clothes but we're we're the same people underneath it all um so you know I think it's that real sense of a deep understanding of human nature and what drives and motivates us so let's talk a little bit about the museum so when was it established? You know, where is it? 
how big's the team and and what's it like if somebody were to come and visit what kind of experience would they get so the Dickens Museum is comprised of two Georgian townhouses at numbers 48 and 49 Doughty Street. And this is in the Bloomsbury area of central London. We're about a 10-minute walk from the British Museum, if that's a useful landmark. And 48 Doughty Street was the house where Dickens established himself as a writer in the late 1830s. He moved in at the age of 25. Um, on the weekend, he was celebrating his first wedding anniversary with his wife, Catherine, and their first child, the first of 10 children, uh, Charles Dickens Jr., young Charlie, was only a matter of weeks old. Um, and during the time he lived here, it was just three years, he um, went from an unknown writer um, writing under the pen name Boz to this international su superstar, um, literally known the world over. Um, so they, it, it was fascinating that in those three years, he, he did a phenomenal amount of work. He was finishing writing his first novel, Pickwick Papers. They went on to write Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby. He started working on Barnaby Rudge. He was editing a monthly magazine, Bentley's Miscellany. He edited the memoirs of Joseph Grimaldi, who's a famous Victorian clown, and wrote a number of short stories. He was writing still for newspapers, for editorial theatre reviews. Phenomenal what he was doing. And during the time he was here, he, um, he and Catherine had two more children and, uh, and expanded their social circle of friends quite dramatically. You know, he became someone who moved across society from politicians, statesmen, um, through to the greatest artists, writers, um, actors of the day. So, so they became this sort of young couple, um, you know, trailblazing uh, across London and, and becoming these really celebrity superstars as we would know celebrities today. So um, in 48 Downton Street, um, we have reinstated Dickens's house as it was when they lived here in the 1830s. Um, and in 49, we have temporary exhibition spaces, research library and archive, um, various meeting spaces, cafe, shop, and so on. Um, and the museum, you'd asked before about um, when it was established. We, we were formed in 1925, founded by the Dickens Fellowship, which is a worldwide um, association of people interested in Dickens, everyone from fans to eminent scholars. Um, so in 1925, um, we were set up then. And uh, initially, and, and actually what was an incredibly forward-thinking move at the time, um, the Dickens Fellowship purchased at auction the two houses together. They'd been running one as a hotel and one as a boarding house. They bought them together with the express purpose of establishing a museum in 48 in Dickens's house, but continuing to rent out number 49 to endow the museum. So it was incredible. And that, that established us as a truly independent entity, um, which we re remain today. We don't rely on any ongoing public subsidy as many museums here in the UK do. Um, and we're fiercely... Um, proud of our, our independence and, and the very forward-thinking moves that established us in that way. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story and, and fascinating how forward-thinking um, the, the organization was that, that long ago. Um, why don't we take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about 
engaging beyond Christmas with Dickens and telling the full story and, and what's next for the museum, particularly beyond COVID. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. On this episode of PreserveCast, we're talking about all things Charles Dickens with Dr. Cindy Sagru um, of the Charles Dickens Museum. And um, before we took our break, we were talking about how the museum was established um, and um, the stories that they tell. So I'm, I'm curious, is it hard to engage beyond Christmas? Is that the focus and how do you get people interested in, in, in Dickens' larger story um, at the museum? Well, you'd think that it would be hard to move beyond Christmas because Dickens is so quintessentially associated with the festive season. But it's really incredibly easy. And it's easy for two reasons. One is that Dickens was interested in everything. He wasn't just a writer working away in isolation in his study at home. He was interested in everything that was happening during what has to be one of the most dynamic periods of history during the Victorian period. So he was interested in technological development, in um, artistic development, in what was happening in medicine and science, um, everything that was going on, he was fascinated and driven by. So because he had such wide-ranging interests, there's just about every topic we could explore and the other aspect is our collection. Our collection officially numbers over 100,000 items. Um, we're going through a painstaking process of cataloging everything, and we suspect we have closer to 200,000 or more items. And this is everything from letters and manuscripts, as you'd expect, to furniture, personal effects, the only clothing of Dickens known to survive, artworks, photographs. Um, it's an incredibly rich and three-dimensional collection. And with that, we can draw out different types of museum displays, but also there's an incredible rich body of research material that has yet to be fully explored and, and drawn out. So with both Dickens as a character in his own interests in, in the world and what we have in terms of this incredible collection, we have no end of special exhibitions or or evolutions we can make to our permanent displays in, in the museum. So it's interesting, you know, talking about all the different stories that you can tell about Dickens and and sort of like Christmas is the gateway, but there's so many different ways of talking about it and his intersection with so many different aspects of mid-19th century life. There's also the the more challenging side of 19th century life, um, and, and, you know, here in the U.S., there's this really renewed focus on telling the full story of, you know, various historical figures, historic sites, and that means the good and the bad. What, what does that look like for Charles Dickens? Um, how do you tell the full story? Are, is there a side to Dickens that maybe perhaps we, you know, we're not as proud of or is more challenging to talk about? How do, how do you approach that? And is that something that you guys are, are thinking about? Yes, absolutely. For the past 
seven years or so, we've been consciously working to present as rounded a picture as possible of, of Charles Dickens, both through evolving our permanent displays and through special exhibitions. Um, we've also been growing our range of digital content, so putting our collection online and developing more subject-focused material that, that sits on our website and related sites. Um, but it's interesting because, the, you know, Dickens wasn't a saint, but he's also a character whose life has been picked over in such detail um, in a way that I can't think of any other artist or writer. And I think that's because there's so much of Dickens that still exists in the world, not only our collection because of its sheer size and, and breadth, um, but in many other institutions as well that have, have letters. Um, so, you know, he's, there's known to be at least 16,000 letters that exist. Um, and that draws out very different aspects of Dickens. You know, a personal letter to a friend or associate is never meant to be picked over by, you know, the general public. Um, so, you know, every aspect of Dickens has been examined in a great amount of detail. Um, and that's not any way of trying to um, rationalise anything else we might say in this conversation, but it's also the fact that Dickens has been picked over in such detail that this is almost every single subject that you could have different sides of or types of perspective on. Um, but one of the more challenging aspects uh, that, that has been talked about quite a lot is how he treated his wife Catherine um, when they separated and it was, you know, he was in his 40s. They'd been married for 20 odd years. Um, they'd had many, many happy years together. And as Dickens became more driven, um, and not only was he continuing to write fiction, he was uh, by that stage starting to do uh, public performances of his work. He was engaged in a whole raft of uh, charitable philanthropic projects as well. Um, as he became more and more driven, he um, almost manic, and I use that word intentionally. Um, Catherine just couldn't keep up with him, and you know, as as relationships do, they fall apart. And he fell out of love with her, and you know, they've been struggling for a few years when he met a young actress and fell very much in love with her. So this is a story that we've been we've drawn that out both in uh, changing our permanent displays to give Catherine more of a voice, um, but also through special exhibitions. And what was really interesting, at the time that they separated, they never divorced, um, they separated. Dickens did this very publicly, and he um, he wanted to um, maintain his reputation, um, which was vital to his income and indeed the, the income that supported a very large family by this time. But he became... Um, he became very concerned that if his reputation was in any way tarnished, suddenly his not only his celebrity, but you know, his, his income would deteriorate rapidly. But he cast Catherine as somehow being at fault because everyone will say if a relationship breaks down, who's at fault? And Dickens could not uh, allow himself to be seen in any way at fault. So he painted Catherine in that way, and she almost became airbrushed out of of the records after that. Um, and was really important for us as a museum because she was an extraordinary, talented and driven, popular woman. Um, and so we 
we worked hard to bring her and her voice very solidly into the museum because it was their home. Um, and she was such an important part, not just of the home here, but of, of Dickens and his career, facilitating him as he established his, his career in jettison into, into stardom. Um, and I think when people come and visit the museum, we, we want them to know as much as we can, the truth about their relationship, how wonderful and loving it was, and indeed how it broke down, what happened after that. But we tried to separate Dickens the man and his failings um, from Dickens the writer and the artist and the social reform campaign, campaigner and all these things that were good and wonderful about Dickens. And I think if, if we don't separate those things out and we failed as a museum, I think we can appreciate art and all the good that can come from that at the same time as recognizing that the artist is human and has and has their own failings. Another thing that we've been really conscious of doing is drawing out some of the trickier um, aspects of what Dickens thought. So he didn't, like I hope most of us don't have fixed views that can never change over time. And Dickens often uh, changed his, his views on different matters. Um, but he had very complex views on race. So while he argued passionately and persuasively for the abolition of slavery, he also believed in racial hierarchy, as many people did at the time. So that while black people shouldn't, indeed no one should ever be enslaved, Dickens, you know, he believed that they needed to be managed, guided, uh, controlled almost in the way that children do, because there's that sense that they were not as intellectually capable or as civilized is often the term that's used. So, so it's really interesting when we explore some of these issues around Dickens and race. Um, one thing that we're doing at the moment, we have a special exhibition on about Oliver Twist and uh, looking at the many aspects of that story. We also have drawn out Dickens's anti-Semitic portrayal of Fagin um, and there's a really rather wonderful story um, uh, of how Dickens was just completely unaware of the, the um, long-standing um, racial archetype that he was drawing on to portray the character of Fagin. Um, and it was pointed out to him um, by a woman called Eliza Davis, who was Jewish. Um, and this was nearly 30 years after Oliver Twist was written, it was still really popular and was constantly being, you know, reprinted and new editions coming out. And she happened to know Dickens um, socially and she wrote to him to say, I don't know if you realise, you know, you're this wonderful champion of, of the rights of, of people and fighting against injustice, but do you realise you have done a great injustice to me and my people? And she pointed out how damaging that portrayal of Fagin had continued to be for Jewish people who did not enjoy equal rights or status within society at the time. And over a series of three years, um, she wrote to Dickens and eventually um, he saw her point and, and she wrote very, very persuasively. Um, and he did a number of things as a result of that. He um, he changed the way Fagin was described in the next edition of Oliver Twist that came out. Um, so instead of him being 
relentlessly referred to as the Jew. Um, Dickens changed that. He also introduced a very sympathetic Jewish character into the novel he was writing at the time, our mutual friend, so Mr. Rhea. And most people will think, who was Mr. Rhea? Um, he wasn't one of the leading characters, but he was an important one. And he was drawn out um, in a way to present a much more favourable impression of the Jewish person. And Dickens also started, as he did in so many areas, to um, to give to Jewish causes, to help champion the cause of Jewish people and support that through philanthropic endeavour. So, you know, he was, he was someone who um, demonstrated that he could have his mind changed and he would do whatever he could to make amends. And I think that's really important because when we talk about writers or artists from the past, you know, they were in a particular period of time and there's a context there, but they're also not here today to have enjoyed the same experiences um, and opportunities of thought and engagement as we have. So I'm always really careful that we shouldn't throw a 21st century lens on a 19th century writer, but however, we need to responsibly as a museum draw out difficult issues and material and discuss them. And, and I think people would expect no less from a museum. So speaking of difficult issues, I'm sure COVID, like every museum, has been uh, a hell of a ride. But where where are you headed? Um, what's, the, what's the hope? I mean, I know we all sort of felt like we were about to come out of this. And I know in the UK right now, Omicron is... Uh, is is skyrocketing um but but where where do you hope to be and what are you looking at sort of post-pandemic as um where the museum is headed well we have a significant milestone on the horizon 2025 will be the museum centenary so we're currently putting plans in place to mark that in a number of ways but thinking about the immediate future our next special exhibition in 2022, we'll celebrate the Pickwick Papers, uh, Dickens's first novel. So he was obviously finishing writing that here in Doughty Street. Um, and then later in 2022, we'll be exploring the very many ghosts in Dickens. Um, everyone's familiar with the, the ghosts in A Christmas Carol, but ghosts appear in, in a lot of Dickens's writings from his very early short stories and, and indeed this uh, in Pickwick Papers, there's a ghost, a very fascinating ghost story um, in there. And right through to later life and, and his final writings, ghosts you know, appear um, as a way to, uh, I suppose, be both a, a guide and a challenger for, for those of us in the non-spiritual world. So, so we're going to be looking at the very many aspects of ghosts that appear in his work exciting and sort of an interesting take on Dickens, which I know is uh, part and parcel of your work. I mean, that's uh, trying to reinvent and tell interesting stories about somebody that a lot of people feel like they know. But obviously, given this conversation, um, not everybody knows them and there's a lot more to learn, which is a good reason to go and visit. Uh, and hopefully as, as the world opens back up whenever that happens, uh, we'll be able to get out there and come and see amazing places like this. Um, a couple of quick uh, hit, quick quick hits before we leave. Uh, do you have a favorite quote from A Christmas Carol? Uh, do you know there are so many wonderful lines? You know, from the very first, Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. I just love that. What a great opening! It grips you straight away. Um, 
But also the first description of Scrooge I like, and I'll have to, it's a, it's a longer one, so I'll just have to refer to it here. So the first description of Scrooge, it's just fantastic. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And it's just, just great, isn't it? You've got those, all those wonderful words. It just conjures up. Um, but if I were forced to choose, I think it would have to be that penultimate paragraph when Scrooge has been transformed um, and he's just promised to increase Paul Cratchit's um, salary and to help his, his struggling family. And this paragraph, I think, just really brings the carol to a close. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. So beautiful. So well done. What a gift uh, Dickens gave the world in that. And and it's... um you know, almost as synonymous now with Christmas as the Christmas story from the Bible. I mean, let's be honest. It's, I think some people, it's, it's just as synonymous with Christmas um, and tells, you know, an equally important story about human nature and how to treat each other. Mm. I think you're right. And, you know, it's, it's, I think what's also glorious about Christmas Carol is that it does have, it does have spiritual message to it but it's a very secular story so i think it's something that can cut across religious and social and cultural divides and i think you know it, it has that spirituality that sense of of and dickens was christian it has a christian good at the foundation but it it doesn't have a message that that would in any way divide people across religious boundaries before we go, we ask this of everyone, uh, and you don't have to say the Charles Dickens Museum, but what is your favorite historic site? Gosh, how to choose? <laughs> well, here in Britain, I think it would be a toss-up between St. Paul's Cathedral in London um, and also the various Roman sites that we have right in the city of London. There's the Roman bathhouse at Billingsgate and the Roman fort and amphitheater Um remains again right in the, the heart of the city the old city of london uh there's a temple of mithras as well so you've got that sense of the roman foundations of london or londinium and then this beautiful christopher wren designed uh, st paul's cathedral uh sitting on top of it virtually um, but if i could look back to my homeland of america um i would I think I would have to choose the home of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's beautifully preserved and presented, but it also has Dickens connections. Um, Dickens met Longfellow on Dickens's first trip to America in 1842. Um, so 1842, so that was one year before he wrote A Christmas Carol. And they became really close friends. Um, Dickens hosted Longfellow here in London when he visited a year or two later. And uh, and Dickens then went back to visit him on Dickens's second and final trip to America in 1867. He, Dickens, spent uh, Thanksgiving 1867 with Longfellow in that house. Um, so I, I like I like that sort of Dickens-Longfellow connection. So I, I think if, if I had to choose one, I would gravitate back to Cambridge, Massachusetts and the Longfellow house. Well, uh, 
fantastic answer and a great way to end a really fun and interesting interview. Um, and again, as, as people get back out traveling, hopefully uh, listeners uh, both overseas and here in the, in the States um, will put you high on their list. Uh, you've, you've done a great sales job for the stories that you tell and the significance of Dickens. Um, and I appreciate you have, having you on um, from the good old city. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.